0: Restaurant Unstoppable episode seven hundred and eleven with Danielle Bruno.
1: Any business where you have where you're interacting with the direct consumer, knowing what motivates them, what's incentivizing them to come to your restaurant or to come to, you know, your coffee house or whatever is incredibly important. But what's even more important is understanding what motivates or incentivizes the employee to actually do a great job.
0: Are you ready for it? For years, restaurant owners have been pleading for more integration in their restaurants, and they finally got it. Restaurant 365 is a cloud-based, all-in-one, restaurant-specific accounting and back office platform that seamlessly integrates with POS systems, payroll providers, and food and beverage vendors. Head over to restaurant365.com slash unstoppable and qualify for 30% off implementation and a free inventory build in Restaurant 365. Five a value of five thousand dollars. What's going on, Unstoppables? I'm really excited about today's chat. I have Tender Green CEO Danielle Bruno joining me today, and why I love this conversation. I get I love to geek out with my guests on all things human behavior, psychology. Uh, anthropology the the study of us and how we got to where we are today and how our mind works in understanding the human just the human being the the the, the beast that is human this this mind of ours that is so complex and when the more you understand the mind, the more you understand people I think there's, I think that 's the key to unlocking success in this industry because it 's all about people it 's all about relationships, and we kind of get into that today. Uh, some of the key things we discuss today is uh, why. Why Danielle's so attracted to this industry? It's it's because she's so fascinated by people. In uh, she's learned the hard way uh, the the power of vulnerability and what being vulnerable can do for you, uh, specifically admitting your. Weaknesses, And as soon as you are willing to be vulnerable and admit your weaknesses, it opens up so much opportunity for you because it unlocks all the access to the information you've been missing. Once you admit what you don't know, people are more willing to share that information with you. It, it just makes you more appealing and it builds trust. The other big part of today's conversations, we get into understanding culture and how the secret to culture isn't just necessarily knowing the significance of these things like mission, vision, values, but understanding how you can influence systems and processes within your organization to Enhance these cultures, uh, these, these visions and these, these values and to lean into these things. And oftentimes, uh, it's systems and processes that dampen culture, but there's also ways to leverage systems and processes that increase culture. We get into the significance of that. And I want to remind you guys, we're still talking about COVID-19. And in today's chat, uh, basically, Danielle gets into what Tender Green's doing, how they've adapted, how they plan to adapt. Uh, she mentions, she mentions how important their, low, their, loyalty program has been and she'll, she shares which loyalty program they're using over at tendergreen uh, we also talk about how there's a whole new set of customer data coming out right now and while you really need to be need to be paying attention to that data because there's so much information about customer behavior and look at those trends they'll tell you how you need to adapt your business lastly we get into what her plans are uh, for the future to, to diversify hint hint meal kits uh, so stick around it's a really great conversation i promise you you will enjoy it here it is and with excitement allow me to introduce to you today's guest danielle bruno danielle are you feeling unstoppable today Oh, I am. Yes, that's what we like to hear. (laughs) So uh, Californian Danielle Bruno is a graduate of the University of California, Santa Cruz, and the University of San Francisco, where she earned a BA in psych and a master's in organizational development. While in college, she climbed the corporate ladder at Macy's before being recruited by Apple to be a part of their retail team. Uh, Other career highlights include two years as VP of retail with uh, Pure Beauty, six years with Pete's Coffee and Tea as VP of retail and marketing and operations man you had a lot going on there and three (laughs) years as president for dry bar today uh and for the past two and a half years danielle has served tender greens as ceo i'm excited for this conversation i really cannot wait to get into it especially because you don't have a traditional path into the restaurant industry you really don't at all all. but those tend to be the best interviews so i'm excited for this but before we dive into your story let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra what do you got for us
1: So my mantra that I uh, decided with my mantra about two years ago is that failure depends on where you end the story.
0: Failure depends on where you end the story. Dive into that.
1: So, you know, people used to ask me about failures and I, you know, I'm sure inevitably it'll come up on uh, this in this meeting too, but I don't really believe in failure. I think failure is part of the journey to any success. And if you look at the most successful moments in history, you know, if you just rewound a little bit. Um, depending on the situation, there was, there's many failures in there. Yeah. So for me, it just depends on where you end the story.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm sure we'll probably pull back or at least I'm going <laughs> to do my best to pull back some of the layers on those failures. So I think those are where the best lessons are too. Uh, really when you think about it. So a uh, great way to get this thing started, where does it make sense to start telling your story anyway? I mean, usually I ask, <laughs> when did you know you fell in love with food or when did you know that this was going to be the, the, the hospitality the food and beverage industry was going to be your path. But then I I'd feel yeah. like would cut out the majority of your story. Uh, because you didn't get into food and beverage until later on in life. Uh-huh. So, so my path,
1: I think my journey to food really was more a journey around loving people. And um, so you know, I've worked in retail, I've worked in service, I've now worked in food, broadly, hospitality. And really, the common thread for me are those are all businesses where people are serving other people. And they're serving them a product. At Tender Greens, we happen to be serving them food, amazing food, which of course we get into in more detail. But this is really um, a career around leading, developing, growing people who like to help other people in their everyday life.
0: Yes. At the end of the day, business is all about relationships and so much that you can pull from... regardless of what your come up is there's so many lessons that could be cross utilized right uh so when did you know that you loved people i mean that seems that that seems like that's the focus of today's conversation uh-huh. your your passion is more about the people behind the food than the food itself uh-huh. so when did you know that people were was your passion like when did you start leaning into that 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 desire of yours yeah
1: so when i say i love people although i do love people <laughs> um I don't think people would probably describe me as sort of like a super warm and fuzzy lover of people. Um, I think, though I do love people, I'm afraid to go too far with that, but I'm more curious about people. So uh, in undergrad, my focus was social psychology. And social psychology is all about understanding what motivates people. And so I've always found myself to be incredibly driven to know what drives people, what incentivizes people why people do the things they do. And, you know, like most people in college, I thought my career would have something to do with my graduate or my uh, degree. Uh, what I learned over time is that very often the, the subjects that people study in college um, do serve them well later in life, but not always in the most literal way. So yeah. I thought I might become do something in social psychology, ended up doing retail thinking i'll do this until i find a real job in social psychology and then realize there's no there's no more real job in social psychology than retail
0: well yeah and especially hospitality and food and beverage i mean retail and food and beverage people don't get into this work because of the masses of money they're going to make you know like it's because there's something intrinsic with within them that that they love the work so I think social psychology is at the core of hospitality and the core of retail, because that's what drives people in this industry. You need to understand that aspect of it to be successful. I mean, you can't summarize all the lessons you've learned in like one sentence about social psychology, I'm sure. But like, what are the biggest lessons you've, you've, you've drew from your, your education from social psychology that you're applying to this day?
1: Yeah. So this may not be obvious to everyone until you think about it, but for me, Everything in life is built around incentives. So focusing on what drives and incentive people actually makes a huge difference to understanding what, you know who people are. So in my business, um, I'm looking at the consumer a lot, whether they're buying uh, food or a computer or a cup of coffee or getting a blowout. Um, what's incentivizing them to do that? And then even more importantly for me, what can I do to help incentivize the team member or the employee that's serving that population? And if you understand those two things, um, you can be incredibly successful in this business.
0: Summarize those two things one more time. That's what I want to make sure I got them.
1: Okay. So there are two factors that really play out on a daily basis in what I do. Um, understanding what motivates a consumer is a very, very big part of retail Food, coffee, um, any business where you have where you're interacting with the direct consumer, knowing what motivates them, what's incentivizing them to come to your restaurant or to come to you know your coffee house or whatever, is incredibly important. But what's even more important is understanding what motivates or incentivizes the employee to actually do a great job.
0: I love it. Awesome. Uh, and I think this is why it's so important. One of the big lessons we've learned in the show is why it's so important to understand, to get to know your employees, to talk to your employees, to find out what drives them so you can find out yes. where they're headed, right? What their desires are and then to feed those desires within the current role they're at and or let them to you let them contribute in some other way that you never even thought of because you didn't know that was on the table, right? Because you didn't know that's they right. had this skill. That's right. Yeah, that's awesome. I love it. So I, I mean, I think I could geek out on this stuff but we got to, we got to share your story. So we got to go back in time. Yeah, okay. Um, okay. So take us to the point uh, when, I mean, I, I heard it's kind of funny cause you mentioned that you love people and you love, you're curious about people, but you also, I, from my research, I found out that you're a little bit of a bully growing up <laughs> uh, and this, these are your words. So I'm allowed to say it.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. for sure. So maybe take us there um, like we'll, we'll the tickets to, to, to that point and we'll kind of t- talk through your, your evolution, your progression.
1: Yeah. So, um, That's actually, it's a great intersection because when I mentioned (laughs) earlier, when I said I love people, I love people, but I'm curious about people. Um, I, I'm not, I wasn't a bully because I hated people or I was mean necessarily. I think I was a bully because, um, I had a, a pretty crazy childhood. Okay. Um, like a lot of people, uh, I grew up in a very dysfunctional family. Um, my parents got divorced when I was 12. My father was a, um, uh, a homicide detective. Okay. And uh, my mother was a homemaker for the first early part of my life. So they had a pretty volatile relationship. And I think that ended up manifesting in me just trying to deal with shit and trying to be uh, control things. And I think when you're young, and your brain's still developing, and you're trying to understand what's going on you create all kinds of scenarios in life where you can either reenact things or try and master something that you can't master at home so i think part of me being a bully when i was younger was just me trying to assert some control and power um not because i was just uh like a sociopath
0: okay oh you're just trying to i mean that's makes sense i think that's when when we live in chaos the first thing we try to do is try to get control over something right think about um when the whole pandemic was going down uh when people have anxieties and they don't know what's going on the first thing they're going to do is try to control their situation which is why all the toilet paper went away because that's people right. were trying to stock up on toilet paper because exactly. th- 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 exactly. th- that's kind of what i'm hearing from you yeah so you try to exactly. get that control you're trying to get that control uh what did you learn about yourself in, in all that and you know i mean not, like, i don't want to put words in your mouth but like how did you get away from that to to evolve into more of a i don't know um a leader. I guess you, you, you eventually became a leader, right? I mean, that's, that's a safe thing yes. to say.
1: Yes. I would say, I would say that would be a, a good word for me. Um, well, I'm still learning. And one of the fascinating things about getting older is you, every time you think you've got a handle on who you are, or learn something about yourself, you realize you are still probably in some stage of figuring it out. But, um, gosh, um, I think part of it was literally psychological development. I mean I think part of it was just the brain growing and learning to understand and socialize differently. Um,
0: I think it's fair to say that you were even a yeah. learner back then your your approach was just command and control right like yeah. and you you alluded exactly. to like other interviews that I listened that that you were always the leader you're always bringing people together, but it was more of an aggressive way to do it.
1: Right. So the, the negative side of my bullying uh, took the form of uh, asserting myself to take control in sort of a negative frame, but I definitely bullied my friends into doing the things that I wanted them to do. But, um, I probably learned some lessons in that. I mean, I was, uh, I was, I started a gang, you know, when I was 10, uh, called the slick chicks.
0: I knew you were hard, but I didn't know you were that hard.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I had a tattoo. Uh, so, yeah, I had, a, I had a Mickey Mouse clubhouse in my backyard. And so I started this gang called the Slick Chicks. And I, and I made everybody write with a, a Sharpie on the back of one of their white T-shirt Slick Chicks. So we had, like, <laughs> gang T-shirts. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, back then they called it bossy. And uh, I was very bossy. So um, my bullying didn't always take the form of sort of, like, physical or psychological harassment. Sometimes it was just, you know, motivating people.
0: Mm-hmm. So... I know there's kind of a transition to, you, you know, you're, you started taking school a lot more seriously and we haven't, even, I, sometimes I try not to do too much research before an interview because I learn so much and I forget that my listeners don't know everything. So, yeah. uh, you, you struggled through high school and like middle school, right? You didn't really take school seriously until after yes, co- high school. That's so right. Get into that. Real that's quick. right.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I struggled through high school, um, I think, like for for the same reason, a lot of kids struggle through high school again if they also develop if they if they grow up in a household that's not super focused on academia and uh, where somebody's maybe not groomed to be very studious. Um, I had uh, a lot going on in my life in high school personally. Um, My uh, parents had just you know got divorced. I lived with um, my mom and she lived with a couple of friends in a condo in L.A. She was sort of, you know, figuring out who she was. Um, I was just coming out or starting to figure out uh, my sexual identity. And um, I think I was just more distracted than anything in high school. It wasn't that I was not a curious person intellectually. I just was so distracted that it was less important to me than other things.
0: Mm, that makes complete sense. Um, so what changed in you uh, post high school to, did you just get more confidence in who you were in your identity that it took less of your, you know, waking mind to, to redirect your, your, that, you know, that extra bandwidth now to further growth on yourself? Like what was going on? How did you, what what changed in you to be a uh, uh, kind of a aloof High school student to a badass college student that created all these opportunities for herself.
1: Yeah, you know, I literally haven't thought about it until just this moment. But <laughs> um, towards the middle of my high my senior high school year, I got into a really big fight with the people in my immediate s- social circle. Really bad, um, like another podcast. But it got, it was to the point where um, I, I self-isolated a bit just to get away from them. And I think it was in that moment of self-isolating and not interacting people. I mean, there's probably a good couple of months here that I started rethinking about my priorities. My priorities per- before that were… Um, hanging out in a park, um, smoking clove cigarettes, and, you know, looking for a local band, sneaking out of my house, drinking California coolers. I mean, those were the things that I really spent my time focusing on. And when I got into this huge fight with them where I was literally, literally like afraid to run into any of them, and I um, sort of hunkered down in my bedroom, I started really thinking about my life differently. And I grew up in kind of a small suburb of L.A., and it was also kind of then that I realized I wanted to sort of get out of town and That's it funny was all of that wants to sort of to uh, came together. And
0: <laughs> I, <laughs> I, was, I was just saying, it's funny because everybody tends to want to get out of town to go to LA and you're, you grew <laughs> up in LA and you want to get out. It's funny. Um, so you, you had the time to self reflect. Um, were you trying to vision the person you wanted to be And If so, what did that vision look like? Or how, how did this, 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 you know, introverted time, uh, affect you coming out of it like paint that picture
1: Um, almost it was almost as if i just woke up one day and decided like what if i were um what if i went from trying to be this really you know emo cool punk rocker chick to suddenly like this sort of like college professor Professional. I mean, it was like, literally, I woke up one day and I was like, I think that's what it almost like somebody who's like, you know, I'm going to be a rock star. I was like, I suddenly can see myself as this sort of like intelligent person who goes off to college and, um, you know, and these friends that I've left behind sort of look at me as like this crazy success story. That, that, it's weird like like I said, I, I like literally have not thought about it until just this moment, but I
0: think that's kind of how it happened. well, congratulations on bringing your vision to fruition because I mean y- you are that success story now, so that's that's incredible uh, so how did you start living your life differently from this point? How did you start uh, being more intentional to achieve this goal of being a woman of success?
1: Well, um, I wrote an essay um, that it was, you know, I mean, I, I, I learned enough basic stuff in high school. I paid attention enough to, to have, you know, decent writing skills. Uh, I wrote a letter, I wrote an essay to get into UC Santa Cruz, and I really put my heart in it. I mean, I talked about um, my family, my upbringing. I talked about um, coming out at 15. I talked about the hardship I had with this group of friends. Um, there was this period of time when my parents actually kicked me out of my house, and I ended up living with my grandparents. So um i poured enough into it that i think it made me interesting enough to get accepted um and the reason i chose santa cruz is because you know growing up in la i spent a lot of time at the beach uh we had a house uh in santa barbara growing up and so i spent a lot of time at the beach uh i had researched uc santa cruz and um it was uh kind of like a cool hippie school with smart people but it wasn't as hard to get in as berkeley and uh, and i got in
0: so i want to dissect that a little bit cuz i think there's so much power in what you just shared with us the and that's the the power of vulnerability the power of complete utter tr- transparency what feels like in the moment at your own demise but it's so it's so empowering. It's, I mean, first it's empowering to admit Trent, like who you are and being honest with yourself. Right. But then to take that honesty and to share that with other people, um, the things that you were might maybe be insecure about earlier in life. Right. And and coming out with these oh, insecurities, yeah. I mean, that's how you gain trust and, and and we can take this lesson and we can do the same thing in our own businesses with our customers, right. With our employees and this, this place of complete oh, vulnerability. Yeah. And you got into this good, this great school because of that. I mean, you instantly are going to suck people in when you get that open, that transparent, that vulnerable, it's such a powerful tool when, when done right. And it has to be real. Yeah. Do you want to dissect that a little bit more?
1: So powerful. And to be honest, something I really wish I had understood more a lot earlier, I think, gosh, I mean, the power of vulnerability, the willingness to utilize the things that maybe made you fearful or things that you thought were weaknesses when you were young, harnessing those things into what makes you who you are and being willing to express those things. I mean, it's for me, it's the, you know, when people say, what lesson do you wish you had uh, learned earlier in life? hundred percent. That would be it for me. Yeah. Just understanding that those things that made you weak or fearful before actually make you, um, an interesting human.
0: Right. And I think vulnerability kind of goes hands in hand with, or goes hand in hand with, um, self-awareness because you have to be yeah. very self-aware yeah. to be vulnerable. You yes. have to know, and very few people are self-aware. I think something like, like a small percentage of people who think they're self-aware are actually self-aware, uh, which is just kind of <laughs> funny. So, um, <laughs> So from there, you're, you're hustling, you're in college, you're doing well. Yep. You're, you're, you're also working at, Macy, at Macy's at this time, correct? Well,
1: my first uh, couple of years at UC Santa Cruz, I actually, I uh, worked well, not, I had several jobs. Uh, I worked at the school library. Um, I worked for a pizza place for about a month before I got fired because uh, I This is before GPS. I had no sense of direction, and I was trying to deliver pizzas. And uh, I was working at one of those pizza places that had a 30-minute guarantee. If you don't get it in 30 minutes, you get your money back. So they were just giving pizzas away like right and left. So I didn't last long there. So I had a lot of odd jobs. Um, And it was really towards the last uh, couple of years where I got a job part-time
0: at Macy's and then worked my way up. All right. Let's take a break there to, take our, uh, to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back to, to talk about your professional path. If you're sick of paying multiple vendors and services to outfit your restaurant needs only to deal with the frustrations of technology that's clunky and void of that seamless experience that you so need, then you've got to check out Restaurant 365, a cloud-based restaurant specific accounting and back office platform that seamlessly integrates with your POS system, payroll provider, food, and... And beverage vendors and banks with restaurant 365 you'll have real time reporting and analysis to make the best and most data driven decisions no more guessing other features include detailed daily and labor data from your POS system accounts payable automation automated bank reconciliation incorporated inventory management with guidance on reducing your food costs and scheduling features to reduce labor costs and engage your employees all saving you time money and headaches. Take action today and find out how restaurant 365 is saving restaurant owners up to 5% on prime costs. That's awesome. Head over to restaurant365.com slash unstoppable and qualify for 30% off implementation and get a free inventory build within the system. A value of 5k we're back and uh, you're just starting to get into your professional career. Um, any key mentors? I love focusing on mentors and the people that influence us to help us become the people we are today. So reflecting back at this time, any key lessons or any key mentors that really set out to you.
1: Key lessons. Yes. Key mentors. No. Okay. Um, and you know, when I'm asked the question about mentors, I usually come from a position of, you know, I, I really didn't have any great mentors, but what the real answer is, I don't think I was a good mentee. I think, you know, I was, I was one of those people who, I don't know if I thought I was too smart or um, if I just wasn't open-minded enough or if I didn't see the value in it, but I didn't have a lot of mentors. And I think that's because I didn't seek them out. And probably when they made themselves available, I don't know that I ever took it seriously.
0: Okay. So what advice do you have? I mean, where do you want to go with this, this, this section? Like, what are you thinking? Like, I don't want to take you off your train of thought.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it goes a little back to what we were talking about uh, a few minutes ago in terms of being vulnerable. I think, I don't know if it was an era or if it was just the type of person I was, but I think it's really important to be comfortable not knowing stuff. Mm. And um, I think it was later in life for me, probably in my mid to late thirties, before I started realizing that saying I didn't know something or asking for help was actually um, a character strength and not a character flaw. Why is it a strength? And,
0: Why is it a strength?
1: It's a strength because, I mean, well, first of all, because you don't know everything. I mean, there's so much you don't know. And, um, it's painful to imagine that like that, I thought I did know everything um, because I was just cutting myself off to so much new information. And so, I think it's a strength, A, because it allows for that vulnerability. And mm-hmm. I think that makes people closer to you. Um, but B, because it just puts you in a perceptive mode where you're willing to take in information. Yeah. And That's so incredibly powerful.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And again, I think back to self-awareness, knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know so you can let people in who can complete that, you know, to round off what you don't know so you can get access to that information. But if you're if you if you don't let that in if you if you're closed off because you don't want to admit what you don't know then you're not opening yourself up to those opportunities um, and you know I, like you said like one of the things that I used to be like with the podcast that, and I thought that by starting the podcast I'd get access to all this information and I would just know so much and the truth is the more that I've learned the more that I realize I don't know shit and like yeah, that is in yes, itself yes, is just so yes. like anxiety for a while until yes. you realize that it's okay not to know you know yeah.
1: i don't know why we ever thought it wasn't okay i mean i don't know where i where many of us get this idea that we're supposed to know everything like i just don't
0: even know where that comes from i don't even know i think it, you know I, social norms maybe like i don't know like like maybe it was so important to not break out of the pack because I, yeah we needed to get along with others i don't know like but we evolved it as humans you know, this is something that is inherently uh, in a lot of us right so there should have been some kind of evolutionary benefit to you know not showing your hand right yeah
1: yeah i think i think god i don't know i mean it's like on one hand you know there's some social status associated with knowing some things so i think it's like yeah it's good to know some things um but somehow that got like mutated into like you should know everything right and i think um it's it's illogical and it's untrue so i mean I think the healthier version would be, there's some things I know a lot about. Um, there are more things I don't know much about. there's some things I know nothing about. And as a society, society wouldn't be great if, as we're getting together and learning from each other, we can cross exchange this information. We can all learn a little bit more, but if I'm thinking I know everything and you know nothing, there's actually no point in us interacting at all. Yeah.
0: So bringing it back to your story, while at Macy's, you realize that you didn't know everything, and you you started opening yourself up to people who knew what you needed. Um, yep. Any other way we can dissect that, or is it worth moving forward at this point?
1: Realizing you don't know everything, so opening yourself up to uh, learning new information, and also as you learn that new information, just sort of testing the water a little bit, and being willing to sort of figure out what comes from that. Because if you already think you know the answer, then you're not even going to like learn those little things along the way.
0: Yeah. So I'm really excited. Um, Well, any other key lessons uh, with your time at Macy's before we start talking about how you were recruited by Apple? I'm sure you learned a lot from that organization.
1: Yeah. I mean, there is a crossover lesson. Uh, The crossover lesson is the reason I got recruited to Apple, which is um, when I was at Macy's, I, I was still in this sort of state of mind that I'm going to work in this retail job and I'm, going to, and I'm going to keep doing this until I get some sort of a real job outside of this. And I think the good news about that is um, I didn't take myself so seriously. And so when I was operating at Macy's, um, I would be running departments. I would be learning things. I'd be learning things about the business but I was also willing to be experimental because unlike a lot of people I worked with who were just like, here are the rules, follow the rules. I and mean, it's super authoritative, um, hierarchical environment. And so people are like, if you want to get ahead, you have to like follow these rules because I was kind of like, yeah, this is just, you know, part of the journey for me. I was willing to sort of test things. And so, um, it's what I later learned in life would be, would be called servant leadership. But at the time, you know, I would be hiring people, um, And again, you know, the standard way of operating there was like, you demand something, people follow the directions, they follow it to a T, and if they don't, they're bad at their job. Mm. And because I wasn't like that personally, I hired people who weren't like that. And I would hire people to be part of my team that would truly be like a part of my team. And I saw a lot of success in that. So while other people were struggling with things like growing sales or having their team turnover regularly, I was seeing the success that um, was really happening because I wasn't sort of following the rules. And it was in somebody that I worked with who sort of saw me operating that way that referred me to Apple when this whole thing started. Uh, he was uh, somebody I didn't work with that closely, but um, he went to work for Apple. And uh, when they asked him for uh, names of other people that he thought would be successful there, he gave them my name for that exact reason. So you, the,
0: the, the culture fit for Macy is just didn't sound like it was, it was good for you. You need to be, you need to be a part of a, an organization that was more centered around chaos and, Uh, invention, right? And the yes. So for people that are listening to this, uh, and I I agree with you that it's, you know, you you can kind of, if if you do it right, tactfully enough, you can get ahead by doing what's not expected from you. Like you just mentioned, like you can zig when everyone else zags and you can get noticed. But how do you find that balance in doing that in a way that isn't too far off the beat, the beaten path that you get fired. You know what I'm saying? Like, how do you find that balance yeah. of of zigging not yes. so far off path that you're not pissing me yes. off?
1: That's the key to it, right? So, um, I think I think the safety net I had is that my results were always very good. Um, you know, I really understood what success looked like, and success there was very specific. It it was um, having a having a good P and L right? So driving sales, reducing cost. Um, The things I was doing were not, I was not doing and putting those things at risk. It was, I was doing those things. And I was having successful results. And uh, that's why they kept me around, despite the fact that I wasn't sort of Falling in line in the other ways.
0: So I hear. So I guess what I'm hearing is having the same end vision, um, wanting to get to the same place as everybody on the team, but you're just choosing different paths to get there to maybe unlock a new creative approach or a new efficient approach or like whatever. Um, is that yes. kind of okay? Cool. Awesome. Um,
1: yeah, totally. I mean, I th- I think it's important to say um, if I go into a job. Um, I need to know what success looks like. I need to know what the goals are for the company. Um, It's not creative and interesting for me to decide that the goals are different for me than they are for the company. That's just a disaster, right? Mm -hmm. Like if if success looks like growing sales, if success looks like growing market share, if success grows, it it looks like innovation. I can't decide that success are other things. I can decide how I'm going to get there.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And the more creative i am or the more interesting my path is to get there the more i'll make a name for myself but i don't get to decide what the goals are
2: yeah
0: uh so you make this transition to apple um what was what was the the where was apple at this time take that picture of why they were recruiting you and what your your, your role was going to be
1: yeah sure so um this was the late 90s And uh, the iMac had just come out. So the iMac was sort of the bulbous, colorful uh, computer that um, was up on billboards everywhere. It looked like a rainbow. There were no Apple retail stores. There was no iPod. There was no um, iPhone. So when I joined, uh, they were trying to create a team, put a team together to help create the Apple retail stores. And so they were looking for people from different retail backgrounds to help sort of build this idea.
0: Okay. Um, And what was, was their approach different? Were there any key lessons you learned from the Apple approach that you can share with us that you leverage to this day that are beneficial?
1: Yeah. I mean, so I was a part of a team of seven people and we got to build everything from, we worked on the real estate strategy, the store design, uh, the consumer experience all around uh, the customer flow, inventory management, technology systems process, employee policies. I mean it was like we, we all got to do everything. So for me, um, in terms of my personal learnings and the opportunity I had, huge, right? I mean, it's it's very rare that somebody gets to experience so many aspects of a business. Usually you go in and you're like, I'm a training person, so I do training or I'm an architect, so I design the building. I mean, the team that I got to the team that I worked with got to work on every single aspect of it. So that was huge. And then, of course, um, having access to Steve Jobs and just you know watching him and hearing the way he thought about things was incredibly powerful. So,
0: Steve Jobs is an interesting leader because a lot of people that knew him, um, a lot of people are have no issues with saying he was kind of an asshole. Uh,
1: he was always a dead.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but no, sure. he was an incredible leader. So, I mean, I'm not encouraging to take the I'm not encouraging people to take the Steve, the Steve Jobs approach to leadership of being a dick maybe that doesn't work well in the restaurant industry but there are some key lessons I mean he did have some type of genius that was very effective what was that genius that he had that yeah. made him so effective
1: I uh, I feel very strongly about this I think <clears throat> um, being an asshole doesn't work 99.9% of the time so if people want to take that approach they're going to fail I mean um, the reason that it's so well known that he's an asshole is simply because um, it's so unusual to be that successful and and have a personality like that. So if people decide that that's the portion of the the story that they want to take, it's not gonna it's not gonna work out well. Um, the reason that he was a successful leader despite that was is because he? he was a crazy genius <laughs> and because. He was a crazy visionary.
0: Yeah. And I don't think Wozniak gets enough credit in that, that story. I think that he, who, who would Steve Jobs have been if not for Wozniak? You know what I'm saying? Like he was the technician, and he yep. and Steve jobs was the marketer and they had a really tight relationship. And I don't think either, I don't think Apple obviously Apple wouldn't be where it is today or wouldn't even exist. If those two didn't come together and their unique combination of marketer, visionary and technician. Um, and so, I mean, where would he, where would Steve jobs be without that technician in his corner? You know what I'm saying? So I think the, the power yes. of partnerships is just, a, that's just a testament. You can not be the biggest dick in the world and have that technician, that skill set in your pocket and be so valuable because of that skill set that, you know, it kind of puts you on a fast track.
1: Yeah. I mean, learning how to use, learning how to utilize people and their talents and understanding the bigger vision of the world is incredibly important. I think um, Steve knew how to do that.
0: Yeah. So you were with Apple for, uh, six years, right? Um, you also, you had two roles there, you know, going into retail opening stores, but you also, um, why'd you get away from that? Let me ask you that. What was going on around this time where you made the transition in your, your, title?
1: Oh gosh. Uh, so when I was working for Apple and I was working on the new store opening team and I personally, uh, had the opportunity to open several of the locations, I also was a, accepted into a program at Apple and I don't know if they still do it, but, uh, they offered, uh, a full scholarship for a master's program, so Apple paid for me to go back and get my master's degree in organizational development. And um, when I graduated from the program, part of uh, part of what's involved in macro uh, social development is you know uh, reevaluating things like infrastructure and business programs. And so I was working with um, the chief people officer at the time. Actually, we were having lunch together. And he brought up uh, that there was some opportunity in some other departments, and wanted to know if I'd be interested in helping them sort of restructure some of these things. That took me down this path that ended up eventually landing me in the role of uh, chief diversity officer at Apple.
0: Okay, um, I'm curious. When you went back to school and you were studying, um, basically, how to reorganize a company, what were the key elements? Like, the, like from a 30,000 foot thing. Like, like what were the key takeaways from that degree? Um, which has allowed you to go into these organizations. The, I think there's three or four more beyond this point where you kind of get hired in the organizations already established and you're there to reorganize you're there to, 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 to get this, this brand, this culture and help them scale it. So what were the, the key things that you learned to be able to do that, that you, you pulled from this degree?
1: Yeah. I mean, The thing that's interesting about this subject is that um, there's sort of the macro level, what's the purpose of the organization, to the micro level, which is, you know, what is every single individual's role within the organization? I think having perspective on the full sort of uh, life cycle or or filter of that, um, understanding that the company's ultimate purpose cannot be achieved without aligning the mission to what every single person is doing at the most basic level in the organization. Um, I think most people don't get that those things actually are connected. So I think the biggest learning would be just my, um, my visceral understanding of sort of the cogs in the wheel that actually make it successful.
0: Okay. Um, So, Why leave Apple? I mean, incredible organization, tons of opportunity. You got on early. So I feel like the sky is the limit, right? Um, relatively early, you know, not super early, but what was the reason for getting out of there?
1: The reason I left was, uh, in this role, this chief diversity officer role, um, It was an interesting role in that uh, I had the opportunity to work with a lot of different departments. Um, I spent a lot of time sort of talking to people about um, why diversity mattered through the organization. So I'll back up just to say um, it was in a conversation at lunch where I was talking to our chief people officer about the fact that most of the departments... um, were struggling with staffing issues. They were struggling specifically with hiring electrical engineers. At the time electrical ge- engineers were all the rage and 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 there were just not enough of them. And so in this conversation with him at lunch, uh, I made a comment which was gosh, it seems like, you know, most people who are graduating and I don't even know why I said most people who are graduating from electrical engineering program are white men and there's less and less white men in the country and so you know, unless other people start, you know, going into these programs, we're going to have a big issue from a technology standpoint. I mean, that was really, that was all I said. And then he was like, you know, I've always been, I've been thinking we should create a diversity department here at Apple. Do you want to, you know, be the chief diversity officer for Apple? And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, I'm not even, I'm not an HR person. And he was like, no, this is exactly the kind of thinking we need. And so I ended up sort of creating this job and creating this department that is is there today and it's very uh, you know successful department, but it was not my desire to ever sort of go create this thing. It was just something that I had the opportunity to do. so um, I did that for a couple of years. I worked with historically black colleges. I worked with um, uh, a lot of work uh, groups like women in technology i I, I did a lot of presentations I met with Deans of college to talk about you know ways to you know get people more interested in these programs and it was cool but it wasn't my passion I mean it was like something I like doing but the truth is I really like building and growing retail restaurant hospitality businesses that's the excitement I get from sort of the chaos of, of all that is that um, what really was was more of a personal driver so when I realized that, I didn't like sitting at my computer creating presentations, doing you know roadshows. That wasn't my thing. I liked being where the action was. That's when I sort of realized I probably need to find my way back into uh, the retail
0: world. So, what is it exactly? You said the chaos, the chaos of it, right? What is it exactly that you love about scaling business and and doing all that you do? Like, break that down.
1: For many years, when I worked at Macy's, I I ran their home department, including their Christmas store. So. I mean, I was working seven days a week around the clock. I mean, I worked Christmas Eve till late at night. I would fly home for Christmas. I would come back at 5 a.m. to you know work on the day after. It was, like, it was sort of built into my hardwiring that this sort of movement and crazy chaos was um, how I operated. So when I went to an environment where I was suddenly like working Monday through Friday, sitting at a computer, um, that was very uncomfortable for me. What I realized is that... I like that in retail, things kind of never stop. I mean, it's like, you know, even if you're only working in the U.S., you still have, uh, you know, from time zone standpoint, you know, uh, business is opening at 8, 9, 10 a.m., closing at 8, 9, 10 p.m. I mean, it's kind of always going. And I just like the excitement of something that's always moving and shifting. And again, coming back to that idea of like, what motivates people, what drives people, it's just something I'm so curious about. Even for me, it comes down to like, What kinds of pots and pans are people most interested in and why? You know, are people more interested in the price? Are they more interested in the material? Are they more interested in the brand? I mean, that kind of stuff. Like that's where I really
0: geek out. Like why people work. Like And I'm right there with you. Like yeah. why we are the way we are. How did we get yeah. here? Right. Uh, yes. It's fascinating stuff. Uh, and there's, there's just so much of that. That's just related to the hospitality industry. I think it's a lot because I, th- I think chaos is underrated and uh, I'm right there with yes. you with, within, and I think I thrive in chaos. Like I'm at my same. happiest when I'm just like, I'm where, when I don't know what the next hour brings, you know, where I'm just going in yes. this, but at the same time we can't exist like that in scale of business right and there's got to be that but and there's tons of emphasis on the significance of systems processes procedures protocols all these things like you need that to be successful but yes. i think we got so close to that in like the 90s and early earlier 2000s that we lost sight of chaos and we forgot <laughs> how important chaos was because that's human that's that's where the yes. soul is is in yes. chaos so did you recognize this is this something that you picked up on too
1: yeah. So, I mean, thriving in chaos can mean two things, right? Thriving in chaos can mean that you're just a chaotic person. And so it's feeding you. Thriving in chaos for me is about like creating order and chaos. Mm. Um, maybe again, something that's sort of a nod to my past, but the reason I thrive in chaos is because I love process and systems and orders. So for me, it's about going into chaotic environments and creating order in a way that doesn't lose all the magic that was there with chaos. And I think that's probably the most important thing. I mean, when I went to work for uh, Pete's, for example, um, Pete's was, had been around for 40 years by the time I got there. Um, But it was still operating very much like a tribal company. I think there was maybe there was like, I don't know, 150, 200 located. I don't even remember how many Pete's coffees there were, but There were virtually no systems and process in place because the whole uh was created in Berkeley and it was created around, you know, the 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 product and the quality of the product. And there was this thinking that if you created too many systems and process, you would lose something about the product itself. I think the only reason they hired me and allowed me to do some of the things I, I did is because I worked for Apple and they thought, well you know she can't be too corporate and too structured if she worked for Apple. So maybe there's something in there. and I think it, there actually was because for me, stripping out the things that make an interesting a business interesting, stripping out the culture, stripping out um, the story, that's a disaster. You can't create process and uh, allow any of those things to be damaged. So my I think my personal superpower has been what makes the brand special and unique, and how do I create order and structure? in a way that actually maximizes those things, um, versus, you know, reducing the the power.
0: So I feel like the next natural question is how, I know it's not, you can't answer this in one with one, you know, one answer, but how do you, how do you cement those things that, 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 you know, are the, the soul of a brand, the, the things that we can't lose at the expense of scaling because if we lose it then like it's all the steam's taken out of our sales like all the wind's taken out of our sales how do you how do you do what you just said how do you keep those those important cultural things the chaos um and or even use them to excel the the systems and yeah. the processes how do you do that
1: yeah i can't tell you that <laughs> okay, so so here's interviews so, over <laughs> i mean <laughs> um so i think First of all, I should say that I've been very fortunate to have opportunities where I go work for successful companies. You know, I mean, it's not like I'm taking some broken company that had a terrible product and a shitty brand, and I was able to revive it from the dead. I I actually, I don't think most people could do that. I certainly cannot do that. Um, So I'm very selective in where I go in the first place, right? So for me, the places that I thrive in are places where it's like really quality product and a really strong brand with sort of a cult following. So... The kinds of places that I work like that, if if I'm going there, because I know I, I I mean, I drank Pete's coffee for many, many years before I went to Pete's coffee, had a very strong culture, had a a really avid following. For me, it was like, what are the things about Pete's that made me feel that way? What are the things about Pete's that have kept them in business and so successful for this long? It's like, it's about product quality. It's about the history. It's about the culture. um, It's about the narrative, but the things that are making it less successful are the fact that maybe it's not as profitable as it needs to be. Um, maybe the focus on quality has sometimes made the receiving of the product slow enough that people, you know, don't feel comfortable stopping by to get a coffee on the way to work because they're not afraid they'll get out of there in time. Like, what are the pieces that you can adjust? So that the financial aspects of the business could actually be better without hurting those other things, and and to me, it's just an exercise of going through. If I do this, will it affect this? No. If I do this, will it affect this? Yes. Then don't do that. Okay. Is there another way to get to that result without affecting this thing? Yeah, we can. Also, you know, I mean,
0: it's it's just. Is it just playing the what, like what if game? Is it like the what if? And like, like, what's your process for dissecting these processes? Is there like, are you just kind of like doing like a step by step, like are you literally just breaking down the processes and seeing if there's a more efficient, effective, profitable way to do something without losing a piece of your soul?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, So this is a very sort of retail restaurant uh, reference that, that people would get if they're in the business. But, you know, when you're operating a restaurant or you're operating a store, you're taking in a lot of money. Um, And, you know, barring the, the, the current state of, of the cashless movement where people are not taking cash, which which I, we can go into if, if you wanted. But basically, in most of my career, people were taking in money, right? Taking in massive amounts of cash and they're putting it in the register. And every restaurant, and every retailer has, you know, some form of at the end of the night, counting out the register. So what happens from there is what sort of operators would call cash handling procedures, right? Like, you count out the money, you put this amount in the safe, you put this much in a and this much goes to the bank. Blah, blah, blah. So those are cash handling procedures. Most businesses that have a handful of locations um, create some sort of cash handling procedures. Uh, Pete's had been around for 40 years, more than a hundred locations. They didn't have standardized can- cash handling procedures. And the reason was um, somebody believed that if we create cash handling procedures the employees will think we're accusing them of stealing and that would negatively impact the culture. So again, that's the right thinking. You don't want to do things that are going to make employees feel shitty about mm-hmm. the culture. But it's like, is that really where you want to lay on your sword? Because the fact is thousands and thousands of dollars weren't making it to the bank and employees were stealing. Yeah, um, not, not all employees were stealing, but it was like, that's not the thing you want to hang your hat on like create procedures and systems so that you can find it and track it when it goes missing. Yeah. And so you can weed out the people who are actually hurting your culture, but it's, it's like those kinds of things.
0: Yeah. So I mean, like an, like an example, of, like just like listening to that issue, like one thing you could do that would empower the culture is to practice like open book management and make it about educating the people how to run a business. So if they want to go open their own place someday, they know exactly. How, like, it's, right. it's about empowerment and making it about the empowerment. Like we're doing this to, right. to teach you about business just so you can know how cash is made. Like when you take, it's all about how you approach it. I think is really That's important. Right. Um, so
1: much is about approach and it's about um, again, understanding people. I mean, there, there's like th- there's some belief out there that people don't like rules. Um, but I think that's not necessarily true. I think people at first don't people like don't like rules. rules.
0: People don't like change. Huh? People don't like change. And rules usually yeah. enforce change. Or it, like, uh, yeah, the, you, you you need change to implement rules, right? Um, and I think yes. that part of it's scary. And it's the initial resistance that we focus on. But when we know what our job does or when we know what our job done right looks like, and we have an aiming point, it's actually very empowering. It actually gives people more a sense of, 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 security and control. Uh, and it's actually a good yes. thing.
1: Yes. Again, helping people understand the reason for things is pretty is, you know, can make a big difference.
0: Yeah. So I can't believe how fast time is going with you, which means this is a really <laughs> great conversation. We're already at 51 minutes. We haven't even gotten to tender greens yet. Um, <laughs> So any anything you want to summarize? Uh, any other key experiences at P? I kind of just let you freestyle right now. Like, What do you want to talk about? What, what do you think is near and dear to your heart that has made you successful? Um, and drop that on us, and we'll kind of talk a little bit about Tender Greens. And I wanted to get some advice on COVID, obviously, too. That was the reason why yeah. your publicist reached out in the first right. place.
1: <laughs> but. Right. Um, gosh, oh yeah, that. <laughs> um, I think it's you know really important in the earlier stages of your career to understand what your strengths are. Um, And I, and I've said this before, but you know, a lot of people spend a lot of time and energy focusing on their weaknesses and, you know, focusing on your weaknesses might get you from being like bad at something to better. Um, But it's not going to make you great. So focusing on your strengths, knowing what you do differently than other people and, um, capitalizing on those is probably you know if i if i had to put a through line to many of these jobs uh it would be my own ability to hone in on the things that made me good at what i do
0: got you um and exactly what it is that you're good at doing is seeing the big picture seeing efficiencies and in, in, in finding order in chaos in a way that doesn't suck the soul out of yes chaos i love yeah. that. Um, yeah. So pizza is a great organization. Again, I feel like you, you go to these organizations, you help them. Um, and then maybe like you're, you're always looking for the next project and you're always yes. like, what's take us through that thought process of, of always trying to look through the next process and how you've kind of found yourself always on these. not, you, you're never going down either. You're, you're always shooting up, you know, um, yep. not to say one yep. organization, one organization is better than the other, but I feel like when you came on tender greens, very, forward-thinking organization, very relevant organization. Um, Take us through that.
1: Yeah. I mean, part of what you're referencing is that I have an innate desire to grow, to learn. Um, And part of that is about finding an organization in a place where I know I can add value and doing the things that I'm good at to help get that organization to the next level. But it's also personal, right? Like I have my own ambitions, and so I want to grow an organization. I want to take an organization from point A to wherever. Um, but if if I'm doing that, um, my goal is to to leave it better than I found it, but also to continue learning along the way. So I have worked for great organizations and you said, you know, you work for Apple, you know, that was great. Why did you leave? Pizza was a great organization. So, so at some point in every job I've found that I've been able to add value and get it to a certain place, but then I'm kind of like, all right, I'm ready What's for next? my next thing. Yeah, so if yeah. the organization can't offer it up, um, then I'll find the next organization where I can again, grow the organization, but where I can personally learn more uh, because I don't want to, I'm not the kind of person who just wants to do the same thing over and over and over again. I get bored quickly. Yeah. So, um, part of it's been about the organization and part of it's been about personal opportunity and a new role.
0: So what was it about tender greens that gave you an opportunity to learn more? What was diff so different about tender greens that gave you this whole new landscape of new lessons to learn
1: so much. Okay. So, um, part of my desire was that, um, I love Tender Greens. Uh, I I was personally a customer of Tender Greens, eating at Tender Greens two to three times a week for a couple of years. So I loved the product. Um, The founders who were still running the business were at a place where they were looking for somebody who had scaled businesses, Um, them, the board, the investors, they wanted to grow the company. And so they wanted somebody who had experienced growing brands. They really wanted somebody who didn't suck the life out of brands uh, to grow them. So I think that's what made me appealing. Um, And they wanted someone to take over. So basically, when I was interviewing for the job, I was interviewing for the job of president. Uh, There were two founders left. One of them was president. One of them was CEO. Um, I was interviewing for the job of president, but the other CEO also had plans to leave and move on to do other things. So the idea was... I would be president, I would learn the ropes about the restaurant world, and then I would take over the CEO role. So for me, part of it was just simply the idea that I could go in and be president, CEO of a company, something I'd been wanting to do for a long time, something that I felt like I'd been building up my skill set for many years to do and was kind of like, yeah, I want to run the show. I'm going to be the person who actually like makes the calls here without a boss. Everybody has a boss. I have a board. But like on the day-to-day, I get to make all the decisions. So, so that was a big part of it for me. Um, I also was incredibly interested in learning more about the restaurant industry itself. I mean, there's no business more operationally telling, challenging than the restaurant industry. I sort of saw myself as a sort of operational expert. Um, you know, uh, traditional retail's hard, service. I was, you know, in the, the hair business, very hard. Um, we did skip over But the over restaurant those. business is <laughs> hard.
0: Yeah. Capital H hard. Yeah. So what what makes the restaurant industry so much more difficult, in your opinion?
1: There's so many things out of one's control. I mean, um, basically, you know, from the supply chain, you know, getting food from the farm all the way to getting it into someone's mouth. There's a lot of things that can go wrong along the way. Um, and, and that doesn't even include, you know, the, the things that are required to make the food great. Just like there's a lot of things that can break and go wrong. But the, the next level of what's required to make sure it's amazing Um, requires a lot of people, um, a lot of process systems, uh, a lot of um, passion. I mean, there's really no industry that I know of that requires um, better operations and more passion to be successful.
0: So when you came on uh, Tender Greens, it was 2017, right? Two years ago? Yes. Yeah, 2017. Um, What was your biggest challenge from like day one with this new landscape of food and beverage?
1: Well, I mean, as someone who has worked in a lot of different industries and as someone who had a ton of experience in things like operation and marketing, um, the piece that was most challenging for me was just learning about food. I mean, you know, I've, like everyone, love food and uh, I was a customer and I think have pretty high standards around the quality of food I'm willing to eat. But learning just the basics of how to make food, understanding um, why the freshness is important, what it means for food to be fresh, understanding the supply chain, and getting something from a farm into the hands of an executive chef when it's in whole form and that needs to be literally processed to be delivered to a consumer into a new product when it's still like in the confines of a restaurant. I mean, there's a lot to learn around food. Yeah. So, uh, I think I spent my first six months just learning as much as I could about the food, where it came from, uh, what, what makes it, you know, good. Um, and, uh, and so that was probably the, the, the biggest learning curve for me. It wasn't a challenge in a negative way, but it was definitely a challenge in terms of like, I have a lot to learn.
0: Yeah. So once you felt like you had a grasp on the food, the, the, um, the, the life cycle of the food, getting it to, you know, the farm to the the customer's mouth and the, the lingos and all that stuff. What was your next challenge?
1: My next challenge was the restaurant landscape itself. Um, when I joined, it was the most competitive time in history in the restaurant world. And, uh, that led to, um, you know, issues around how do you keep customers loyal in such a saturated environment? Um, the the guys who built the brand had uh, created an amazing brand and fantastic product. They did invest a ton in technology and marketing because they came up in a time when um, that wasn't as important as the food itself. So when I joined during this incredibly saturated competitive time, I just spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to get the customer to understand what made tender greens unique and why they should come to tender greens versus, you know, the hundreds of other places that were not only on the block next to us, but like on their phone.
0: So that's the, part of the, the process. It sounds like uh, to, again, what we're answering is how do you keep customers loyal? Right. Um, that's what you had. That was a problem. You had a, to, uh, address in, an oversaturated, very competitive market where everybody's now making salads and, and grain bowls. It's like the new thing, right? right? Um, and it sounds like your solution was to leverage technology. How, how were you leveraging technology to keep a human element strong loyalty?
1: Yeah. So I mean, going back to what we we're talking about before in terms of like, when you're looking at efficiencies and systems, how do you, not break the things that are amazing while you're trying to improve things. Right. So, um, the product quality at tender was amazing. It was something that was, they never compromised on. And even when competition got hard and, and profit started going down because labor rates went up, um, they could have made the choice to, you know, change the quality of the products. They could have made the choice to change the size of uh, portions. They didn't. Um, and so, when I came in, I was like, I can't do those things either because the thing that makes Tender Greens unique is the food, the quality. Um, so, we're not going to touch those things. But what we do need to do is find a way to invest in technology so that the people who love Tender Greens um, can get value out of it. So, we created a loyalty program that um, set up a tier system so that the most loyal people received you know, um, incentives for coming more frequently. But also, you know, in the marketing associated with making people aware of who we were and that we had a loyalty program, I mean that's sort of where we invested a lot of money
0: okay um, are you still using that loyalty program today? Yes, what is that program? Can you share? It? is it was it in-house or did you outsource?
1: Um, we outsourced it to punch okay um, and uh, it you know on tendergreens dot com now we, we have an app for it but I can tell you, and I know in a second we're going to be talking about what's going on right now in the world, but our loyalty program has really saved our lives. If we didn't double down on the loyalty program in this economy – uh, we would be in big trouble. So this is a,
0: a big challenge for a lot of people is leveraging technology to increase that human element of loyalty. What was, I mean, there's a lot of options out there too. It's almost overwhelming. Like what, you know, w- w- what made you guys land or settle on, on punch? What was it about punch that appealed to you and what you you guys were trying to accomplish?
1: So what I'll tell you is uh, the team before I got there landed on punch. Okay. They were in the early stages of, uh, creating a loyalty program and this is actually you know in line with what you're asking in terms of the the loyalty program itself so um, they asked some basic questions they came up with the idea of launching punch punch seemed to have the the basic tools that were necessary to build the loyalty uh, platform but they didn't think through the pla- they didn't think through the program itself as as much as probably they needed to because when you're creating a loyalty program you um, If you don't do it well, you can sort of create disincentives, right? So, you don't want to have a loyalty program that only rewards people who come so frequently that uh, you're never going to get people past a certain tier. So, um, there was a program in place. It wasn't really launched. It wasn't really developed. Uh, When my team came in, they actually sort of uh, redesigned the loyalty program to make it more aligned with, again, you know, human incentives. So
0: it sounds like you need to make if if you're if you're approaching uh if you're taking the tiered approach, you need to make the the tiers attainable. Um, Because yeah. if 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 the first hurdle's so high to get over, then they don't get into the funnel. They don't.
1: It, yeah. They don't you need to make over. the tiers attainable, and you need to be make the rewards interesting. I mean, if if it's like you hit this tier now you get something uh, that is uh, not relevant, then um, then the person loses interest.
0: What's an example of an attainable tier, like the first tier? Like, What's a realistic first tier to get people to get over that hump?
1: Well, I mean, it would be so different for every business. But one thing uh, that I would suggest is, you know, look at how your consumer currently behaves, right? So if you're saying uh, something like, of our customers are doing this or buying this or coming this often, then um, that's probably a good place to set your first tier, right? So it's like you want those people who are 30% of your customers to be doing whatever they're doing more often. And then you push the tiers up so that you can get those people already doing that to get to the next tier.
0: Okay. So you kind of take something that's, that people are are already doing and you just, give a little like a little like what's one little extra thing thank you like a little bit
1: of a you know here's a um a logo item or a free gift or you know uh kids eat free like whatever it might be something that's just a little bit of a reward which starts out as sort of like a thank you for being so loyal
0: and you mentioned some incentives that you share. Like, what are some of your favorite incentives? You think the to, to add value? Um, how can you add value in these different tiers without necessarily breaking the bank? You know, like how do you, can you create can, perceived value?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, it, it's it really depends on the the customer and the business. But you know, it might be something like. um You know, if if you're noticing that uh, 30 percent of your customers are getting a, you know, a a certain drink or getting a cookie, like maybe, you know, your first incentive is that once a week you throw one of those things in uh, because it's something, you know, they love already and that it would be great for them to be like, oh, my cookies, you know, on the house today. So, again, something, you know, they already like that they're already going to do. Um, if it's something that's totally outside their regular behavior, they're just going to be annoyed
0: by it. Got you. Um, so you're a psychology major major. I'm really kind of curious. Do you know why these loyalty programs are so effective? What's going on with how we work and why we do the things we do that make these programs so effective?
1: Well, they're only effective if they're built correctly. Um, and the ones that are built correctly, um, make people feel good about the decisions they're making. I mean, I think, um, if I feel like this program is rewarding me for being in the know or being smart, um, or for being, you know, a regular customer, then that makes me feel like, um, I'm spending my time wisely. And, um, I think people like to feel good about the decisions they make.
0: Got you. So you already mentioned, um, that this loyalty program has saved your butt with this you know, pandemic that's here. And uh, you can't, I feel like at this point, if you didn't already have a pretty well-established loyalty program, you kind of missed, is that a, is that a false statement? Uh, do you think it's too late well, to even develop? I would, a make,
1: a di- I would make a distinction. Okay. There's, there's loyal customers and then there's loyalty program, right? So we have lots of customers who come to tender greens all the time. And they either, you know, before all of this, they came in person you know, after this, they might be uh, purchasing our product through Postmates, DoorDash. Um, they may come and take their product and leave. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean they're invested in our loyalty program itself, um, which basically is an opt-in system where you have, you know, your name in there, and and your uh, your meals are being sort of recorded. I would say, if you don't have a loyal customer going into this, you would be in trouble. Yeah, I think if you have the added benefit of a database of customers that you uh, know come to you frequently and you know what they like, then that gives you a whole nother level that you can access during a time. It's
0: interesting because we call it loyalty programs. We also call it reward programs. And I think that the Mm -hmm. reward programs is probably a better use of words because like you yes. said, they're already loyal. You're just rewarding them for their loyalty. That's um, right. And, and there's just,
1: lots of loyal people who aren't part of the program.
0: Yeah. Um. So, I mean, we have some time left. I still want to kind of, I would love to bust out a speed round with you, a five minute speed round before we wrap yeah. up. But I want to get into COVID a little bit. Obviously, yeah. um, I don't want to spend much time talking about what you have done because I feel like yeah. a lot of what we, that ship has sailed and, but I want to spend time talking about what you're going to do. Um, and what you think the future of the industry looks like and how we can come back stronger. That that's really the, the theme I want to echo when we're talking yep. about COVID is like, how can we share knowledge and come back stronger? How, how can we, how can we choose to come back stronger? So yep. real quick, what, what, how did COVID-19 affect you guys? Were you able to maintain retain a lot of your employees? Did you have to lay off a bunch of people? Did you have to shut down or close temporarily? Like what was the the result from
1: the, yes, pandemic? all of those things. Okay. Uh, so, at Tender Greens, we had a fairly healthy delivery and to-go business going into this. So unlike fine dining, um, we, we were already a little better positioned. Um, so when we closed down our dining rooms, um, we were able to pivot to that form of business. It's, you know, uh, uh, it's just a percentage of what we were doing before. But uh, we did close down uh, a handful of stores on the East Coast, um, a couple of locations and malls where the malls were basically closed. Uh, the rest of the locations we left open, but between the stores we closed and the skeleton, skeleton crews we went down to, we laid off about half our employees.
0: I mean, that's pretty good compared to what other people had to do. I mean, you, the fact that you're able to hang on to half is something, you know? Um, yeah. So what's your plan for the future? I think that's really what people want to know. Uh, how are you adapting your businesses? What's your plan for the future?
1: Yep. So at tender greens, uh, we, pretty quickly launched into a line of grocery goods. Um, and the, the way we went about it was um, as consumers, there was lots of product we didn't have access to, right? We'd go to a grocery store and we couldn't get, uh, you know, eggs, milk, butter, uh, you know, meat products, fresh produce. Um, and we knew that uh, as consumers that we were frustrated by not being able to, to get to that food. So we also knew- Um, because we're a restaurant that brings in whole fresh foods every single day, that there are farmers and food suppliers that suddenly had their supply chain completely cut off because with all the restaurants closing down. um, They've got like uh, uh, crops that they've grown. They've got like milk. Especially this time of year,
0: you know, like it's like, it's like we're all, we're we're getting into that, you know, that, that freshness, that season of freshness, right? Well, maybe in California it's year year round, but in other parts of the country. Um, So, Um, so basically we, 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 we wanted to find
1: a way to get that food to consumers, which is why we created this grocery box because it was like people are pouring out milk. People are, you know, crops are going bad. So we created this product to try and, um, meet that need. Mm -hmm. So what that means for the future for us, um, I think in creating that, uh, straight from the farm. Through you know through our restaurants putting these boxes together and getting that up to the consumer, we're learning a lot about what matters to people. And so we're looking at our menu, and when we reopen, we're looking at like how does this evolve our menu long term? Are there products that we're selling today in this you know COVID time um, that we weren't selling before that may stay on our menu permanently? Yeah. and um, that's what we're looking at right now.
0: I think I think what's gonna one of my pro- I don't know if these uh, if the whole grocery. Um, approach is going to have legs for a long long term. I think that yep. um, people are going to start slowly getting more confident going out. Uh, yep. But I do think people are going to try to reduce how much they go out. Um, yep. If they can go pick up, you know, their lunch today, but they can also get leftovers and reduce, you know, the 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 amount of times they have to go. I think yes. you, know, you know what I'm saying. Yes. Like, how, like, how can we create something that? Let's our consumers have leftovers so they can reduce the amount of times they have to go out. That's right. Um, That's right. I think that. W- w- what are you guys doing? Is, do you agree with that, yeah. statement or Are you adapting? To totally that? agree with it. Okay. So we
1: have we have groceries like proper groceries, like literally like a dozen eggs or you know a, a pound of butter. Uh, but we also have things like you know a, a full cooked steak, a, a full cooked chicken that serves four. We have uh, large uh, venue salads. So you could uh, create a whole family meal from our, so you could literally buy what you would normally buy. Maybe you would buy a soup or you'd buy like a regular salad, or you could buy from us a steak for four. You could buy, you know, a side of, you know, quarter mashed potatoes and you could buy, you know, a Caesar salad from us. And where two months ago we didn't have that, you know, uh, you would buy an individual entree. Uh, today we offer that and you would now have food for your family for days.
0: Yeah. And I mean,
1: so that may stay, that may last.
0: Yeah. And I think that, you know, the truth is, I mean, we're like, I think the the split now is like 40 60 40 percent of all money spent on food is at restaurants now versus 60 percent of people. I, I can't remember the exact number. but We're almost at that 50 50 point. So there's a huge segment of people that like that have become accustomed to eating well and eating healthy. And now they're saying. Nope. You can't go to restaurants. You got to go to grocery stores, but they suck at cooking or they don't know how to cook right. or they didn't have any yes. of this stuff that, yes. so they, yes. they, they still want to be able to get somebody to cook for them. Right. Yes. But in a way that is just much more effective that they can stretch out over multiple meals. Um, yes. and just the convenience of that, I think that's where you're going to see a lot. Of, and yes. I think it's a good thing. I really do because I think yep. that you're going to, well, this isn't my time to say what I think, what do you think is going to happen? Like that's all. <laughs> <a very curious laughs> well, do I do think
1: people are, are experimenting more, right? Yeah. People are, you know, I mean, You can't find bread yeast anywhere, right? Like, like suddenly everyone in America is making bread. Um, So people are experimenting more. I think people are going to find things they're good at, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be making all of their meals, right? They might be making certain things. They might be ordering parts of their meal. They might be, you know, ordering. Like I said, maybe they order a steak from us, but then they supplement it with the things they're good at making.
0: So I think it's just a matter of consumer behavior, like paying right. attention to the new consumer behavior and filling those, those new voids that are, have been created within the market. That's um, right. That's uh, right. So what, what else are you going to do to stay creative to, to, to serve your market that they, the, or things that you have already done that you can share with us?
1: Yeah. So we, you know, we launched these grocery boxes. Then we actually uh, create an a la carte format so that somebody could buy their traditional entree, but then they could also get, you know, uh, you know, uh, a thing of a bag of onions or a bunch gotcha. of bananas with their, you know, steak meal. Yep. Um, we also uh, on Wednesday are going to be launching uh, now that the laws have made it easier for us, uh, bottled wine and, and six pack and 12 packs of beer. Nice. Um, so that's another way in which you can get, again, you maybe you're going to buy a steak dinner from us. Now you can get a bottle of wine too, which is also going to be a new behavior. Um, and, this has not been announced yet, but probably in about two weeks, we're going to be launching meal kits.
0: Oh, beautiful. Um, yeah. I, won't, I won't, pull back too many layers on that. Then, <laughs> uh, one thing I do want to know before we go to the speed round is what do you think the future of the industry looks like? Um, as far as when do you think we're going to come out of this, your prediction? And also will that, like, when do you think we're going to come out of this answer that? And then also I would love to know, um, what you think needs to change now that we have this opportunity to reset, how do you want to come back stronger?
1: Yeah. So God, I mean, this is, this is a, you know, multiple times a day conversation with so many rest, restaurateurs. restaurant um, tours. I think taking your questions a little bit out of order, uh, the thing that needs to change, I think the thing that we, we now know that we, it will be very, it will be very hard for us to forget is, is germs, right? Like, I mean, the thing that's uh, so bizarre about this COVID-19 and the fact that people can get sick is um, that I, I personally have been uh, isolating with my family for over a month and I haven't gotten sick at all. So, I mean, I have two kids uh, in grammar school. We're here, we're sick all the time in this house, right? (laughs) Somebody is always sick. Nobody's been sick. Mm. So that's sort of the mind boggling thing for me is that like, great, we're avoiding getting this terrible virus, but we're not getting anything else, which means Nothing.
0: germs are real. Yeah, yeah right?
1: <laughs> yeah, so I think the thinking about germs and passing along germs and the hand-washing and the client, like, like I think our brains are going to be forever changed around our awareness of germs and other people. How that plays out is is a mystery to me, um, you know, especially when you think about things like bars, where people are just like all over each other, you know what I mean? So, so I think... um what that translates to in terms of, of going back and reopening. I think uh, opening, I think most responsible businesses will open slowly and cautiously. I think we're going to see a lot of places, and we already do see it in certain places in the south where they're just going to open up. And I think they're going to see a resurgence. And then I think they're going to back up again and they're going to end up doing that back and forth. Like to me, that's a disaster. I, I, I would much rather open more slowly and cautiously and move into a more normalized economy than risk sort of like jumping the gun and end up having some sort of a relapse that I think would be terrible.
0: Slowly reducing the restrictions and you're already starting to see it with like grocery stores, right. And where it was really controlled and now they're starting to get a little bit more lax with like, but they, but in that time they were able to implement procedures within the store to to accommodate or to, to combat the, the, the likelihood of contracting something within the store. So, you know, we've, we've adapted, you know, uh, in different ways. So we don't necessarily, so I think that that's what you're going to see is like, like you said, just like that slowly it's going to be a pendulum yep. swinging back. Yes. Um, uh, what do you think needs to change about the industry? That, that, that's one thing I'm really curious if we can come back stronger, some like what's, what's one thing that if we all get on the same page today about this is what, what's wrong with our industry and this is what we need to do collectively to make it better. And we can make that change now. What's that look like?
1: Well, I mean, Going into this crisis, the restaurant industry, let's be honest, was already in a bit of a crisis. It was a a crisis of of saturation, too much competition. Um, I would say probably too much mediocre product. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably uh, restaurants uh, that maybe shouldn't have existed in the first place because they weren't offering something unique and special. Mm -hmm. And um, I think some of what happens... When we get out of this, hoping that the majority of restaurants survive, I'm hoping that the ones that survive survive because um, they really offer are offering something unique and special. They're offering a great product. They're offering great service. Um, they're doing interesting different things that maybe weren't done before. So I think we all have to look at sort of why we were existing in the first place and what we need to do to justify that existence. So I think what comes out of this is that people sort of double down on, on what they're good at. Um, and the and the businesses that maybe shouldn't have been around and maybe weren't, you know, staying current with the times or didn't have something special, you know, maybe those businesses retire and allow some of these sort of better quality restaurants to thrive.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny that you, you say that because I've, I've said that with, you know, it's hard to say this without getting people to hate you because so much so many people are going through so much shit right now. And it's just like you've got to be sympathetic and empathetic for what people are going through. Um, but at the same time, like you said, it was an oversaturated market that was being, you know, like money is just being pumped into this industry. That's right. Um, especially because that's there's retail is going away. Like it's only that's natural right. that you're transitioning to the restaurant world yep. because retail is going away, you know? Um, yep, that's right. and it, because of that, like you said, or like these retailers or, or these, um, property owners are just pumping money into the restaurant industry. And yep. it's, it's not realistic. So, um, I think, I think it's a good thing that like the cream of the crops rising to the top, it's going to make us only stronger and better. And it's sad that some people are losing their careers, but maybe you weren't meant to be here in the first place. You know, if you didn't, and it sounds cold, but there's a certain, because of where we were, you know, it's kind of a good thing that the market's being,
1: there is going to be a bit of a survival of the fittest. For sure.
0: Yeah. Um, it's just the reality of it, but I've, I've loved this conversation. Thank you so much. Um, one more quick break. We'll be right back. What's going on. Unstoppable. So it's just me in this time, the next 60 seconds. I wanted to let you guys know that we're working on developing a community here at Restaurant Unstoppable, and one of the big lessons I've learned that success in this industry isn't so much about quantity as much as it is about quality and that's one thing i want to start being better about here at restaurant unstoppable i want to go deeper i want to make an impact i want to slow down and put my energy into things not just going out and out and out onto the next interview onto the next interview i want significance soul um and the way we're going to do that is by slowing down and building a community so i wanted to share the big purpose of our community with you to get you excited. So. The big purpose of our community is to connect the finest restaurateurs, operators and experts with the next generation of leaders to share inspiration, knowledge, values, philosophies and virtues so that we can improve ourselves, others and ultimately transform the industry. So if that is a big purpose that you want to be a part of. I ask you right now to head over to Facebook and join our unstoppable restaurant owners and operators group and it's a private community so you have to be a restaurant owner or operator or working within a restaurant with aspirations of owning and operating um to be a part of this group. So be mindful of that when you request uh, and thank you. And uh, just, yeah, we're really trying to keep this thing with as high integrity as possible. And I want you guys to be a part of it. So get over there again, Facebook unstoppable restaurant owners and operators group. Go come, come join the conversation. All right. Peace. We're back And the first question I have for you. Danielle is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success.
1: Uh, confidence.
0: What is your biggest weakness? Ice cream. Ooh. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, what's one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process when you're building your team, when you're looking for new people, what qualities are you looking for? What questions are you asking?
1: The question that I ask that is a deal breaker is uh, what is your go-to karaoke song?
0: Ooh. And what are you looking for? Just, uh,
1: I'm looking for uh, a, Comfort and a vulnerability to answering the question itself.
0: Okay. I love it. What is uh, your biggest challenge to your current challenge?
1: Um, COVID-19.
0: Yeah. Right. How? And I think we already kind of broke down how you're dealing with it, So you don't have to answer that again. Uh, share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a core value, a way to be a way to act. To speak up. Mm, I love it. Uh, why is that so important to you?
1: um, Oh, my gosh, because uh, if you have a great team, which you should have a great team because it's incredibly important, but um, then they're going to be full of information and knowledge that um, I don't have. If they're not speaking up, then I'm limited to what's in my brain and then I don't need them.
0: Awesome. And I think it's really important that you get to encourage your people to speak up because we live in a culture today where it's not encouraged. If you're an employee, like you do your job and we don't really encourage yeah. people to speak up and you're not, that's a waste. Yeah. A waste. You, you give yourself access to that potential energy. Uh, share one uncommon standard of service you teach your team. So this is something that is common within the four walls of tender greens, but not common throughout the industry as far as going above and beyond to serve your guest.
1: Um. Uh, not speaking via script, real conversations, connecting with people.
0: What's one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner?
1: It's obvious, but setting the table by Danny Meyer.
0: What's your biggest lesson from that book?
1: Um, My biggest lesson from that book is that uh, there are no rules. You know, basically he says a lot in the book who said we couldn't, you know, and I, and I, and I, it's just, it's something that I love thinking about all the time.
0: I love it. And I'm curious, did you read that book before you got into the food and beverage industry or is that something? I about?
1: read the book before my interview at Danny Myers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it. Uh, wh- I,
1: but I wish I had read it a lot, many years before. I, I this
0: read, I forgot that Danny Myers, uh, Danny Meyer is a, an investor at Tender Green. Is yeah. that what? Yeah, that's yeah. right. I totally he's an forgot. investor and a friend. That's awesome. I love Danny. Uh, yeah. Where his, I don't know him personally, but I love what he stands for for sure. And just even like what he did over the past week with giving ten million dollars back. Like who? I mean, he got a lot of shit. And I, I know this isn't like this isn't like traditional speed round stuff, but I have yeah. to defend him a little bit because he got a lot of flack for being on top of shit. And when you really think about what he got flack for, uh, as far as um, the g- getting the money that he got, right? You
1: mean Shake Shack. You're, you mean well, Shake shack.
0: shack. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, the brand, the, the man behind the brand, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think w- they were just on top of things. And the reason why, from what I understand, um, when it came to the pay, uh, paycheck protection program, um, they were just looking when, when the government was getting these applications or these requests, they were just filing from the most, expensive to the least expensive because they wanted to get through the money as fast as possible. Yep. Um. Yep. That's not on him. He was like, he's just as an operator, he's always just been on it. So he got his stuff in, he got all the, like, he got exactly what he needed to request. He just did his job. Right. And yeah, I feel like, you know, at the end of the day, it's just like,
1: well, I mean, there nobody knew. I mean, there's, there's basically no rules around this, right? Yeah. Everybody was doing what they felt like they had to do to save their business. And I yeah. think um, you can't, you know, you, you you can't condemn somebody for trying to save a business they built.
0: And how many people do you know who, who get handed ten million dollars would give it back? You know what I'm saying? Oh, like, yeah. And it, yeah. none yeah. of us will because ever be put in that position. Or not to give
1: it back. Yeah. People's memories are short. People would have gotten over it, but they they made the decision to give it back because they felt like it was the right thing to do. They found they're finding other ways to raise the money. But yeah, I mean. would have gotten over it. They could have kept the money.
0: Yeah. We like to think we would do what we would know what to do if we're put in that position. But the truth is not the majority of us, the great majority of us will never be in that position. You know what I'm saying? So we can't relate. Like it's hard, you know, so like, um, and there's
1: no rule book right now. I mean, this is unheard of. This is, this is completely like, who knows what you're supposed to be doing right now. Right.
0: I just wanted to get into that a little bit. I completely forgot that the, that those, <laughs> those brands were related. Um, so the next question I have for you is what's one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do often enough or well enough
1: eat at other people's restaurants.
0: Yes. Uh, Name one service you've hired or outsourced. So this is uh, a service like, and this is kind of weird with bigger operations, but like what I'm trying to get here, what I'm trying to do is connect good people with good people. So uh, a a marketer, a designer, like a skill that somebody's using and putting their skill, like in selling their skill, who's, who's one person or one service you've outsourced that you've been really so,
1: We outsource our IT side of the business, which I've never done before, uh, to a company called Surge run by Jason Bueller, and he's awesome.
0: Beautiful. And what is one technology you've adopted within the four walls of your business that's had a huge impact? Dispatch by Olo. Okay. And this is the last question. It's a doozy. Get ready for yeah. it. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be?
1: Uh, Break the rules. Failure is necessary. You're going to die anyway.
0: Break the rules. Failure is necessary anyway. Wait. Break the rules. Failure is necessary and you're going to die anyway. Awesome stuff. Uh, Thank (laughs) you so much for taking the time to to, you. Originally, you came on my radar just to talk about COVID and I got way more out of you and I'm super (laughs) grateful for that. Uh, Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and knowledge. Uh, We wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. So who's one independent restaurant operator? Somebody that you respect and admire and believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today.
1: Uh, Someone I love, I think she's just such a, she's a a brilliant business person, but more than that, uh, just a fantastic person is uh, Kimberly Malik from Salt and Straw.
0: Kimberly, look out, I'm coming after you. I'd love to get (laughs) you on the show. And uh, how can we connect if we want to maybe join your team?
1: I mean, people can find me on Danielle, I mean, on Instagram, I'm Danielle Bruno. All
0: right, beautiful. And um, thank you so much uh, for taking the time. Again, there is no questioning, you are unstoppable thanks eric you're awesome Take care. Um, all right there we go. another episode wrapped up here at restaurant Unstoppable danielle Bruno was awesome. Thank you so much danielle and uh the big takeaways again from today 's conversation is this mentality this idea of vulnerability it builds trust. It can be a very, very valuable tool in your arsenal of tools and your suite of tools if you know how to wield it, right? So uh, we can be vulnerable if we just admit simply what we don't know. We show our weaknesses. By by doing that, we instantly gain trust and we gain access uh, to these individuals because we're no longer a threat. They're willing to open up their their chests of, of Tools like the, the same chest of tools you have they're willing to share their tools with you now because there's you're not a threat. Um, I don't know. If that's a good analogy, well, that just came to my mind. So that's the big takeaway for me today, too. Also, working using systems that enhance culture. And uh, that's where we really need to focus on systems and processes and ways to enhance culture, not to just force people around round pegs into square holes or whatever the, the saying is. And uh, lastly, I think the, the big takeaways we got from COVID, the big stuff you want to talk about there is that there's a lot of data coming out of our restaurants right now we need to be paying attention to that data it's going to tell us so much uh so be focusing there when you're trying to decide on your next moves and also the power of loyalty programs if you're using those i'll uh, get to work I, maybe it's maybe it's not too late so if you're not using some type of loyalty program really start to consider that now and then lastly guys just a reminder that uh, we're trying to slow things down here at restaurant unstoppable i want to you know take this time to reflect on the past two years of my my life traveling around the nation driving literally laps around the nation over the past few years to to get in front of these great mentors and to to be more soulful more connective with them and i learned that a lot from them that you know part of connectivity is just taking the time to to really go deep and to be present. And it's so hard to do that when you're going so fast. So I want to slow things down and get far more intentional. And part of that intentionality is building relationships. And we're going to do that with our community. So head over to Facebook and join our unstoppable restaurant owners and operators group. Join the conversation, be a part of the community, share knowledge, and just grow. That's what it's all about. So uh, thanks for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out.